All right. Um, so good to see you guys. Uh, you guys know last week I kind of bailed out at the last minute because my kids got COVID last weekend. So I was like, I could go and mask, but I decided to not risk that. So I decided to stay home. Um, and you guys watched a video by J.D. Greer. I found that kind of last minute. And what he talked about last week sort of overlaps with what I did the first week and also what I'm doing today. So it's not like a total repeat, but um, I want to make sure we could still dive into this topic today. And uh, so we've been in the book of Judges. We started that uh, two weeks ago. And um, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. You can turn there on your, in your Bible or either if you have an app on your phone, that's fine too. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes there can be strong parents that are strong believers and they can live out their faith in a very genuine way, but then the kids can just go off astray and, and totally reject what the parents believe. Or sometimes it can happen where um, with many people in a family, maybe two or three of the kids maybe decide to start following Jesus, and it's a genuine faith, but then some of the other kids in the family might decide that's not really for me, and they kind of reject the whole thing and, and rebel against it. Um, so can anyone tell me who this person is? quick quiz. Anybody? Not leaders. Who? Okay, Joe Biden. It's not Joe Biden. Um, John Piper. This is John Piper, and he is a, an author, a speaker. He's been a pastor for a number of years. He's actually retired now. But there are a lot of people all over the world influenced by him and his ministry. Godly man. Um, he has a lot of kids in his family, and I think many of them are following Walking with Jesus. And, uh, but he has this one son, named Abraham, who is not walking with Jesus. And I, I think the story goes that his son Abraham had, um, you know, kind of rebelled in his youth, and then he came back to Jesus. I read a blog post last week about 10 years ago where uh, Abraham writes this blog post saying how Christian families can be praying for their wayward kids. So he, he apparently came back to Christ a few years ago, and then recently he rejected the whole thing again. And so now he is, uh, I think, doing online videos and stuff, kind of deconstructing his faith and, and talking about why he's no longer a Christian, why he no longer calls himself that. And, uh, and so the question can often arise in our minds, like, how is it that someone like a John Piper, you know, his, that caliber of person, can, their, their, their kid can still struggle immensely to embrace the faith that someone like John Piper um, says he believes? Now, listen, I don't know what happened here. I, I can't, we can't ascribe blame. Well, it's the, it's the way he and his wife live their faith out, or it's this or it's that. I can't ascribe blame in that way. But sometimes the transfer of faith doesn't happen from one generation to the next. And so we look at the book of Judges. This happens on a broad scale with the nation of Israel. And so we talked the first week about how the purpose of this book, Judges, is it's written to show the consequences of unbelief and disobedience for the nation of Israel. And it's really kind of a dark and depressing uh, tale of this country, this, the, the people of Israel. And uh, so turn with, the, with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 7, starting off. And this is now referring to the older generation, the past generation of Israelites. And it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So if you remember the story of the Israelites, they enter the land with Joshua. He's their leader. And now this generation, this generation, they know the past. Just think of all the things that they had seen as the nation. 
They had been walked through all kinds of things, visible representations of God manifested in front of them in miraculous ways, and they witnessed these things. So they saw some amazing things, and they, they of course, had some struggles, but for the most part, they followed God. Because here's the reality. They're, what they saw in the past fueled them in the present. So they had this, God talks about remembering a lot in the Old Testament. Remember, remember, remember. And what God means when he says that is let those past events fuel you in the present. Give fuel to your faith in the present. So that was true for the, the older generation. But then something happened. Skip down to verse 10. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to the fathers. That means that they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, how is it that one generation knows and remembers and acts on that faith, but then the following generations seem to forget and have this disconnect with their faith? Now, when it says here, know or knew, the, the word knew does not mean that they didn't know about the exodus from Egypt or the Red Sea parting or the destruction of Jericho. It's not, talk, it's not saying that they didn't know about those events. They knew about the history. They knew the facts. But knowing some facts isn't enough to transform somebody. The older generation or the younger generation, they knew the stories. Their parents told them the stories, but knowing those facts isn't enough to transform somebody. So when thinking about the past, the older generation, they would cry. They would weep thinking about how God moved in their midst, how God revealed himself at the parting of the Red Sea, or even taking the landing and entering into Jericho and, and seeing the, the city walls collapse. So when thinking of the past, one generation cried the next generation yawned. They grew complacent. They're just like, yeah, we, we know the stories. We, we've heard all that before. But, but, but they hadn't lived it. They hadn't experienced it. So one generation cried. The next generation just yawned. And I think many of us do this today. We know some facts about Jesus. And we think that makes us Christians. But listen, facts never transformed anybody. Somebody can say, yeah, I believe in those facts. I believe in the history. You know, I'll say I agree with those things. But, but that, not, that doesn't really change someone at a heart level. It's possible to say that you believe some things about Jesus. But if those beliefs never leave your head and enter into your heart, they're just useless and you remain unchanged. So, so knowing facts about a person is different than knowing the person. That's true of your friendships or a husband-wife relationship. You can know some facts about somebody, but not actually know that person. And the same goes for our relationship with Jesus. So this, this generation, the younger generation, forgot something really important. They forgot that they used to be slaves in Egypt. They forgot their history. And I think we do that sometimes. We, we often forget that we used to be slaves to sin and that we can forget the gospel sometimes. This happens in our lives. So the question for you is, does your faith ever seem boring to you? Do you feel complacent and apathetic in your faith? I think one, thing, one helpful thing to think about is remember who you used to be or who you might be apart from Jesus, that you were a slave to your sin apart from Christ. 
And it's good to think back on your own personal history, even family history. Think about a relative that you might have. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but there everyone's family has a relative. You know who we're talking about. That You can think, man, that, that person, their, their life's kind of a train wreck. And, and a way for you to re-engage with the grace and mercy of God is think about, this is what my life might look like if Christ hadn't saved me. Now, don't do that in an arrogant, self-righteous way. But it's a way to humble you, to recognize my life could look totally different right now if Christ hadn't set me free from my slavery to sin. And this is the thing the Israelites forgot about. They forgot they used to be slaves and what they came out of. Look down at verse 11 and 12. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. One thing we see in this passage is that forgetting who God is and what he's done leads us straight into idolatry. So this transfer of faith from one generation to the next didn't happen with Israel and I think at times when that, when that occurs, people like to blame one generation over the other. Well, you know, some blame the older generation. Well, the older generation, they didn't really reach out to us. Like, they didn't speak our language. They didn't really get into our world. And so it's their fault that we're rejecting the faith. Others might just blame the younger generation. Well, you know, they're, they think they know everything. I mean, they're just a bunch of rebels anyway. And so some blame the younger generation when this kind of thing happens. But really, it's, it's usually a little bit of both. I think both can, can, can take some responsibility there. But we see a simple pattern from one generation to the next, and it usually goes like this. One generation can have full commitment, be living out their faith in a real, tangible way. It's a heart faith and not a false faith. But then the next generation grows a bit complacent and apathetic, and they might claim to be believers, but it's just kind of like they're going through the motions. And then the next generation, there's just full-on compromise with the culture and buying into what they see around them and committing some of the sins of the culture and even celebrating some of the sins of the culture. This happened in Israel, and I think it happens for us today. So one generation might be committed, true believers, and then the next become complacent, might claim faith, but they're just going through the motions. The next generation may outright reject the whole thing and say, you know, I don't believe that anymore. And this can happen, I think, in our own lives. And I've seen this play out in many families. You know, sometimes the, it's a mystery to me that the, the parents can, can be so or seem so committed to their faith, but then the kids just kind of grow complacent to the whole thing because they've never known life apart from Christ and, and a relationship with Christ in the church, and, and they can just take it all for granted in those situations. But sometimes I'll see complacent parents. I mean, they're, they're attending church. They're doing spiritual activities. But there's just a complacency there in the parents. And, and the kids see it. I mean, they're not, they know it's there. And that leads to compromise in the kids. You know, why should I take this seriously? My parents don't take this that seriously. Why should I take it seriously? You know, I think young people uh, can be sensitive to inconsistency. And so I've noticed as a parent, you know, my kids are really good at this, at detecting 
inconsistencies in things that I say, you know, hypocrisy in things that I say or do. My kids are like hypocrisy detectors. I don't know if you guys are like that, right? Um, but most of the time I say things that I think make sense. Like I've said things like, you know, finish your broccoli before you eat that ice. That's a statement that makes sense to me. Finish your broccoli before you eat that ice cream. That makes sense, right? But sometimes I say things that don't make any sense. Like one time I said, finish that pizza before you eat that cupcake. Like that doesn't really make the same sense, does it? There's an inconsistency there. And my kids look at me kind of funny like, what? Like I got to eat the pizza first? Does it really, does it really matter? I mean, you could really turn that statement around and it would have the same nutritional meaning, right? Um, mean the exact same thing. And, and so, listen, kids know when things don't add up. Like, like, kids know when there's an inconsistency or there's a hypocrisy going on in the family. And I think it's true in a spiritual sense as well. Whenever they see complacency or hypocrisy, when the kids see that in the parents... I think they're more likely for those kids to compromise their faith and to totally outright reject it. Many years ago, there was a parent at this church who called me and said, hey, can you come and talk to my son? I think he was like 18. I think he was actually out of high school at the time, but he had, I think, just finished high school. And I didn't know their son. I, did, I knew their daughter, but not their son. And they said, can you come talk some sense into our son? I was like, well, I, I don't like that wordage, like the language, but I'll, I'll try to talk with him and just see where he's at. And uh, so met with him at their house and, and talking with him. Yeah, he started down the drug scene and all that and started down that road. And I'm asking him questions and all, all those kind of things. And an hour into the discussion, he reveals to me, I said, well, who do you normally do drugs with? And he mentioned his friends and stuff. And he says, well, sometimes my dad and I do it together. And I'm thinking, but, but your dad's the one that called me to come here and talk to you. So I wasn't, wasn't registering, like, how is this that this dad wants his son to live by a different standard than even he will live under? And so you can see how a kid or a teenager can look at that and say, my dad or my mom, their actions aren't matching what they say they believe. And when, when students see that kind of inconsistency, of course they're going to question and say, well, why should I believe this if they don't believe this? They're not living it out. So if you see hypocrisy in your parents, I want to encourage you to, to do something. Don't use it as an excuse to reject the faith. Because you, you should reject hypocrisy, but don't reject Jesus. You see, because Jesus rejects hypocrisy. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always calling out hypocrisy. And so it'd be wrong for us to say, well, I can't believe this. They're hypocrites. And then, but, but Jesus agrees with you. Like, like he would say, yeah, that's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And so it makes no sense to reject Jesus when you actually agree with him in your rejection of hypocrisy. So as I think about it, there are three different kinds of parents that I think about as it relates to you guys. There's hypocritical believers and I put that in quotation marks because um, these parents might go to church, they carry the Bibles, they smile, they talk a nice game, but things are just can be really bad at home. And you might see things at home that none of us really see. And, and listen, if this is your home, I want to encourage you, don't let, don't let their sin be an excuse for your sin. 
And so there's a reality in the church. You're going to have some, some generation, some parents that, yeah, they're hypocritical believers. That's just what, what's happening in the home. Then there's the, the unbeliever. They don't even claim to know Christ or want to follow Christ. And I've seen, I've seen some students come to faith against all odds. And it's a miracle to watch some kids come to faith because the parents want nothing to do with any of it, but God in his grace just snatches them up in his mercy, and they surrender to Christ. They plug into community. They start growing. I want you to think about this. Don't ever underestimate what God can do. This summer, we're going to go to impact camp to train many of you on how to lead impact clubs in, in June, and the guy that I've asked to be the speaker this year is a guy named Bobby Pruitt, and I'm so glad to have him speak to you because he is a, a pastor who basically invented the impact idea down in Austin many, many decades ago and was a youth pastor for a number of years in Austin. Now he's a pastor of a church over in Hutto. And he's kind of like the impact Yoda, okay? Like he's, he's like this ancient guy who has all this wisdom. Once you hear from him at Impact Camp this year. And, but when you hear his story, his story is incredible. Because he is the youngest of 13 children. And his parents were not believers at all, abusive, alcoholics. And he will tell you that every single kid in his family, I think, is still currently an alcoholic, except for him. God just snatched him up. Out of 13 kids, he's the youngest. And I'm sure he saw some horrific things in his life. But God just snatched him up in his grace and, and saved him and set him on this course to be a pastor and to lead youth and to lead a church. And God's done an amazing thing in his life. In fact, he tells the story of how his dad, to wake him up for school, would come into his room and pour beer on his head. That was his greeting on, on many, many mornings. And yet God, God saved him and redeemed him, re redeemed him. And now he's a pastor and been doing it for years. So there are some, at times where God can just do a miraculous work in someone's life, even though their parents aren't really following Christ. And listen, I understand that some of you might have very difficult home situations or no parents to speak of are really involved in your lives. And you might be tempted to reject the faith because of that. But I want to encourage you. You might, you might ask questions like, well, how can God let this happen? You know, why couldn't God give me a better home life? But do you know why the home life is like that? It's because somebody rejected Jesus. So don't make that, that same mistake if that's happening in your home. Don't make their sin your sin. So then we have um, when the parents are strong believers. Now, this is interesting because this is when maybe you've grown up in this and you've just seen it day in and day out, and they're actually living out a good example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But here's your danger. You're in danger of taking it all for granted and not appreciating what God has, has put in your home. And your temptation will be to, to become complacent or apathetic and just to be like, yeah, this, every kid has this, don't they? Parents that are together, 
parents that blo- both love Jesus, parents that lead their kids in prayer and devotional times. Doesn't everybody have that? Right? And you can, you can start taking that off for granted because many, many don't have that and don't experience that on a regular basis. So at times we can see a connection between the parents' faith and the kids' faith, but sometimes the, the connection isn't always so clear. And so I want to go back to our story. So, so what does God do in Judges when they forget about him? So look at Judges 2, 16 through 17. And it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them, and yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard, yes, the Bible uses some strong language, they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So whenever Israel rebelled, God would send these judges, these leaders, throughout their history to speak truth, but those people didn't listen. They didn't want to hear it. Now that image that God uses for, adultery, for idolatry in the Bible is adultery. The image God uses for worshiping other gods is adultery. It's this like sexual image that God uses when, in relation to his people. I can't think of a more painful human experience to walk through than adultery. Nothing's more painful than that, I don't, I don't think. But when God uses that picture, he's communicating something really profound. And so if, if all sin is idolatry and all sin is like adultery, it's like cheating on God. So whenever you and I walk off into idolatry, God sends these people into our lives speaking truth. And many times we just ignore it, like the Israelites did, when these judges would confront them. Now skip down to verse 19. It says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So as each generation passes, things just get worse and worse and worse. You ever notice how um, generations try to out one another? It's like one generation comes and it's like, no, we can do better than that. And so they just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And this is happening in Israel. Now, you need to understand this one thing. For Israel, it's not as if they just stopped worshiping God altogether and just started worshiping idols. They would combine the worship of God with idols. And you see, that doesn't feel that wrong, does it, to, like, combine our worship with God to, to idols? So um, for them, it, they didn't replace God with idols. It was God plus idols. And I think we could do this, fall into the same trap as well. One writer says it like this, the danger isn't atheism, but we ask God to coexist with idols. So danger for us isn't always just outright rejection of the faith, but it's that we ask God to coexist with our idols. I think we can fall into the same trap as well. So your greatest danger isn't that you outright reject the faith. Of course, that is a danger, but it's not the only one. But many of you are going to be tempted to slip into complacency or apathy or allowing idols to coexist with God. But if if adultery, if if idolatry is like adultery, then imagine being in a marriage and finding out that your spouse has gone behind your back and cheated on you. And when you confront them, they say to you, well, no, 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 no. I still want to be married to you, but I also want this person as well. Like that wouldn't bring you any comfort, I don't think, right? Right? Because there's no such thing as a little bit of adultery or a little bit of unfaithfulness. 
It's devastating. It destroys relationship. And the same is true in our relationship with God. So I want to ask you a question. How do we know if something is an idol in our lives? Here's a question to ask yourself. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area of my life? We did a relationship series back last semester. You guys know the whole story. But that really centers around, are you willing to obey God when God says some difficult things in your life? If not, then good chance that thing might be an idol for you. Next question, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? What if God takes something away from you, something really valuable for you? What if God sends some suffering into our lives? Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area of my life? So how you answer those two questions, I think, can reveal whether something or someone is an idol for us. And then skip all the way down into Judges chapter 3, looking at verses 5 and 6, where it says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So what happened was, because Israel didn't drive the people out, they intermarried with these other uh, pagan people, and they began to adopt their ways and commit idolatry with these other people there in Canaan. So here's the big question I want to ask. Why didn't their faith get passed on to the next generation? One generation knew God. The next generation did not know God. One generation remembered what God had done. The other did not remember Why did that generation fail to pass on their faith? I think it might be for some of the same reasons that happened today. You know, many reports will say that the younger generation is leaving the church in droves. And they'll say that about people today, that the younger generation is just leaving the church left and right. And the question is, why is that? Well, I know that your generation likes to blame the older generation. They like to blame the younger generation, right? It goes back and forth between the generations. But since you're the younger generation, and that's who's in the room right now, I'm going to address you guys for a minute. Because listen, you're going to see some things in the older generation that might make you want to reject your faith, and I want to encourage you not to fall for it. Don't fall for that. I read an article recently uh, written by a pretty young guy, and he, he says there's these five things that he has found that frustrate Gen Z Christians. And uh, Gen Z is considered like anybody born between 97 and 2012, I believe. So it includes all of you guys. But um, he identifies five things that make your generation kind of want to reject the whole thing. And here's the first thing. He says, when partisan politics reshape faith. So whenever your generation, this is what he is saying, people that, that he talks to, what they say to him if they see in the older generation that there is, like, no difference between, like, issues of politics and issues of faith, and if they see that politics almost becomes like a religion, which it has for many people, then it makes your generation want to bail on the whole thing. And I think we have seen that, I think, in the generations for sure. So that's number one. Number two, when apologetics outweighs relationships. So apologetics meaning like giving a defense for the faith. So when somebody wants to wield information or knowledge like a sword and just, 
you know, just to defeat people, and they care nothing about a relationship with them, that's what he's talking about here. So it's important to understand what you believe and why, but you've got to be in relationship with people. That's really important, I think. Then number three, when Christians don't live what they believe. So the younger generation look to the older generation, and if they see hypocrisy there, they're going to be tempted to walk away from the whole thing. That's just a reality. And then number four, when Christians are known more for judgment than for love. It doesn't mean we don't say truthful things that might be hard for people to hear, but it needs to be gracious. It needs to be loving. And sometimes, I think, some people might miss that. And then lastly, number five, when Christians aren't serious thinkers. So, listen, people who say they care about truth should not be people who go around espousing lies or sharing lies or fill in the blank, right? Obviously, the combination of, 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 of our desire to share information sometimes online, we don't do our due diligence, do we? We just, we just share things. Well, I heard this or I saw this or I heard this. And there's like this just all this information out there online, right, that even Christians are getting involved in sharing and, 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 and sending and all that kind of stuff. And, and it just appears like we don't really care about knowing what's true and what's not true, right, sometimes. And so he says this in the article. He says, at a time when critical thinking is on the decline and intellectually lazy behaviors on the rise, Christians sadly have a reputation for being among the worst offenders. And listen, I know it happens in the younger generation as well, but I think sometimes what's happening is your generation is seeing some of this stuff, and they're like, you know what? I think I'm out on that. I think I want no part of that. And so I want to encourage you right now. You're going to see you can't always control what kind of faith the older generation lives out before you, but don't let their mistakes cause you to make an even bigger one, which is to reject Christ. Listen, your grandparents' generation is flawed. Your parents' generation is flawed. Your generation is flawed, right? We're all sinful in our own, in our own ways. But what you're going to see in the book of Judges is that even when God sends a deliverer, the judge is also flawed. And so you'll see this whole book points us straight to Jesus. We need, a, we need someone who's a judge, someone who's a deliverer, who doesn't just die, but someone who dies and resurrects. That's the kind of judge that we need. And so we hear more about that as we go throughout this.